good morning, everyone. As Crystal said, welcome to Grace Church. If we've never met before, my name is Kevin, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. And again, thank you so much for coming out and for joining us this morning. Again, we want to welcome those of you who are watching online as well. Well, as we dive in today, I want to start by telling you guys a quick story. And so back when I was a sophomore in college, there was a Papa John's that was near our campus that put out a coupon for one free large cheese pizza. And the coupon went out in these uh, coupon books that were kind of in these, they were in these like magazine racks all over campus and just kind of in various businesses, coffee shops, things like that around the city of Akron. And so once a week, these, coupons book, these coupon books would go out and a handful of people would see them. And then by the end of the week, uh, a new set of coupons, the coupons would expire and then a whole new set of coupon books would come out. And so I don't remember exactly what they did, but I know that Papa John's had a misprint in their coupon. And so the coupon was supposed to read something like this. It was supposed to say, good for one free pizza from 3-1 to 3-3. But what it actually said was, good for one free pizza from 3-1 to 3-31. That little one on the end, that little one made all the difference in the world. And so it was supposed to be a three-day deal turned into a deal that was good for the entire month. And these coupon books that were largely ignored on most weeks were now flying off the racks, right? And so I will never forget going on campus that day. It was incredible to see how fast word spread about these free coupons. And so I don't know how it started, right? Some kid was probably bored, not paying attention to his teacher flipping through the book, and he discovered this thing. And then he was like telling his friend who told a friend who told a friend. And by the time I got on campus, like literally there were strangers walking around campus with like stacks of these, like a foot high, telling other strangers like, did you hear about the coupon deal, right? And like word was just spreading like crazy. And by the end of the day, I kid you not, like you could not find a single one of these books, like they were gone. Every single one of them had been taken. And so literally for the next month, that Papa John's, there was a line out the door every evening that rivaled what you guys would experience at Cedar Point. And I am not exaggerating. Like it, this turned into a social event on the college campus where it's like, hey, what are you doing tonight? I think I'm gonna go hang out at Papa John's for a while. And so you'd, you'd like place your order and then you'd go there. You'd see like 15 or 20 of your friends because everyone else was doing the same thing. You'd stand in line for like an hour. You'd get your free pizza and then you would go home, right? And this repeated day after day for a month straight. And so after it was over, I think it was the student newspaper that reported that somewhere over the course of that month that they had given out roughly 80,000 free pizzas. And I cannot confirm this, but I'm pretty sure whoever was responsible for misprinting the coupon probably lost their job over that one. So the point of my story is this, it's that people naturally share the things that they are excited about, right? There were students on campus telling complete strangers about this deal because to a poor college student, a free pizza is a pretty exciting thing, right? So if you guys think back to the last thing that you were super excited about, think about whatever that is, how many people did you talk to about that, right? If you think back to when the Cavs won the championship, it's all anyone in this entire region was talking about, right? I guarantee if you are a Cavs fan, you talked about it, and you didn't just talk about it a little bit, you talked about it a lot, and to a lot of people, especially to your friends who weren't Cavs fans, right? Like you were rubbing it in probably a little bit. For those of you in the room who are married, I want you to think back to the day that you first got engaged. Is that something that you shared with a handful of people that you kept to yourself, or was that something that you shared with like everyone who was willing to listen, right? For those of you who are young enough in the room, my guess is you texted about it, and you tweeted about it, you put it all over social media, right? Like that was news that you were so excited to share that you shared that with anyone and everyone who was willing 
to listen. Why? Because, well, we tend to talk about the things that we are excited about. So right now we find ourselves in the third part of our series in the book of Acts called Followers of the Way. And today we're going to look at a story in the book of Acts where the apostles, well, they refuse to stop talking about Jesus, right? A story where the apostles, the thing that they are excited about and the thing that they cannot stop talking about is the gospel, the good news about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And as we work our way through this story, one of the questions I want you to have in the back of your mind is simply this. It's how much do you talk about Jesus? Right, as you go about your day when you're with your family, your friends, the people that you work with, when you're talking with your neighbors, how many of those conversations involve or even center around the person of Jesus? And then depending on how you answer that question, a follow-up question might be, and what does that reveal to you? Right? What does that tell you? If we naturally talk about the things that we are excited about, then how you answer that question should reveal something to you. So if you guys have a Bible with you, I want you to turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, you can find one in the seat back in front of you. We're going to be on page 885. And the context of our story is this. So if you back up to Acts chapter 3, we read this story about an encounter between two of the apostles, between Peter and John, and this guy who was a beggar who was born a cripple, meaning he was born with the, without the ability to walk. And so uh, they have this interaction, and the, the beggar is asking for financial resources. And Peter says, listen, I don't have any of that. I don't have that to give you. But I do have something else I can give you. And he actually heals the man in the name of Jesus. He says, get up and walk. And because this guy was such a well-known beggar, like he, everyone was passing him day after day after day for years, everyone knew who this guy was. And so now they see this guy walking around with Peter and John, and like everyone's like, hold on a second. This guy's walking. I need an explanation. So the crowds basically just start running to John and to Peter, and they say, we need an explanation. Tell us what happened. And so Peter, of course, what does he do? Well, he starts talking about Jesus. So that's the context. We're going to pick up our story, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1. We read this. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John While they were speaking to the people, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. And so as Peter is talking with the crowds, we're told that they are approached by three groups of people, the priests the captain of the guard, and a group called the Sadducees. Now, if you're not familiar with who the Sadducees are, they were one of the the larger religious groups, the Jewish religious groups that existed during that time. One of the other prominent groups that maybe you're a little bit more familiar with would have been the Pharisees. You often heard Jesus talking about the Pharisees. So the Pharisees and you had the Sadducees. You had a couple different groups. Now, a couple distinguishing marks of the Sadducees would be this. Uh, the Sadducees, they were considered the ruling class of wealthy aristocrats, meaning they were, just, they were the more wealthy group, and they often found themselves in positions of power. So they're wealthy, and they have positions of power. We know that politically, they aligned themselves with and were loyal to the Romans, which probably had partly to do with why they were sitting in the positions of power. Uh, we know from Acts chapter 5 that many of the priests, including the high priests, were Sadducees and their religious affiliation. So not all of them, but a lot of the, a lot of the, the, the priests and, and um, the, the ruling positions in that world, they were all, many of them were Sadducees. We know from Acts 23 that they denied the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. 
uh, and the existence of angels or spirits. We know that they believe the Messianic age had already begun during the Maccabean period, which means basically about 150 years before Jesus came, they believed that the, the Messianic age had already begun, meaning they thought that a Messiah had shown up, that that age had already begun, and so they weren't looking for a Messiah when Jesus came on the scene. And then we know historically that they had a desire to maintain the status quo, which makes a whole lot of sense, right? If you were part of the wealthy class and you were currently sitting in the positions of power, of course you don't want anything to change, right? You want everything to stay exactly the way that it is. And so a giant crowd starts to form in the temple, and it is no surprise that the captain of the guard, the priests, and the Sadducees, that they show up to find out what in the world is going on. And it's also no surprise that Luke tells us that they were greatly disturbed with the apostles' teaching. Right? If you have a long-standing belief that there is no such thing as a resurrection of the dead, well, the good news of Jesus, well, that threatens to undermine your entire reality. And so in verse 3, we're told that they arrest Peter and John, that they throw them in jail until they can figure out what to do next. So that's where we're at. Our story continues, verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Right? And so after spending the night in jail, the next day, the rulers and the leaders in Jerusalem, they all gather together. Peter and John are brought out before them, and they are asked the question, by what power or what name did you do this? Referring to the man that they had healed back in chapter three. And so this question, on the surface, this is a really simple question, which has a really straightforward answer. But remember that Peter and John are standing before a room of some of the most powerful men of their day. In fact, Luke even lists some specific names of these, these guys, guys like Annas and Caiaphas. And while those names, they might not mean a whole lot to us, these names would have evoked a tremendous amount of fear in the first century audience because, again, these were men of great power. And in fact, these were the same men whom Jesus was brought before in his trial, which resulted ultimately in his crucifixion and his death. And so I have to imagine that Peter and John's minds, they must have been racing and flooded with all kinds of thoughts and emotions. Or do I have to imagine that their mind would have went back to the trial of Jesus? They would, they would have like rehashed and recounted that story and those events. I have to imagine they would have been filled, their minds would have been filled with fears about what might happen to them, and potentially even those that they loved if they continued to talk about Jesus. Because based on what we know about the Sadducees, like we all know exactly what the Sadducees don't want them to say. Don't say the name Jesus don't talk about the resurrection, don't call him the Messiah, right? Everyone in the room, including Peter, knows this is exactly how you upset this audience. But the problem is, that's also the only honest answer to the question they have been asked, right? And so Peter and John, they get put in a very difficult position. There is a lot of pressure that is put on them. But instead of responding in fear, we're told that Peter responds in boldness. Check it out, verse eight. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and notice I've underlined that. So if you're, if you're someone taking notes or you write in your Bible, you can underline that. We're gonna come back to that a little later. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, 
If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And I absolutely love Peter's response to them. Right? Notice how incredibly clear he is. Right? Guys, if we're here because of an act of kindness, then it is by the name of Jesus Christ, the one that you crucified but God raised from the dead, it is by the name of Jesus that this man is healed. Right? Peter is honest. He is direct. He does not withhold parts like the resurrection, which he knows will offend them. And he is as clear as he can be, right? Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And a statement like that, it would have offended people then the same way a statement like that will offend some people today. But it's also true. So how does Peter respond in the face of incredible pressure? How does Peter respond when he knows there might be significant consequences to the words that he's about to speak? Well, Luke tells us that he responds with incredible boldness. In fact, it is so bold that the leaders are actually taken aback by this, right? They're caught off guard by it. Check out their response, verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. So how do these powerful leaders respond to Peter? Well, the first thing the text tells us is that they are taken aback by them, right? That they are caught off guard by them, right? From their perspective, they see some unschooled ordinary guys who have performed an undeniable miracle and now they are speaking to them with incredible honest, right? They're uh, incredible boldness, right? They're being spoken to in a way that most people do not speak to them that way. And to be honest, well, they don't know what to do with them, right? Like they have no idea what to do. And it, the word that is used, it says that they are astonished by their response, which means to marvel, to wonder, and on some level even to admire them. But at the same time, They hate the message that they are teaching. The message of the gospel, it is disruptive to their system of belief. It undermines their authority. It proves them to be wrong, and it threatens the positions of power that they are currently sitting in. But as Luke points out, the problem is they can't deny the miracle, right? Apparently, when they are on trial and they are brought before them, the guy that they healed, like he's literally standing right next to them. And everybody knows who this dude is. And so the story continues, verse 18. Then they called them in again and commanded them 
not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. And so because these leaders don't really know what to do, they decide to flex their authority and simply command them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus again. Right? They try to use fear to intimidate them, which I imagine it probably worked pretty well for them on most occasions. Right? I imagine most people, well, they would have stopped talking at that command. But as we have already seen, Peter and John are committed to the mission that Jesus has entrusted to them. And the threats of these men, it will not dissuade them. And so once again, they respond not out of fear, but with boldness, right? They say, which is right in God's eyes? Are we, are we supposed to listen to you or should we listen to God, right? While standing in front of these leaders, Peter and John, they double down on their commitment that they're going to continue talking and teaching about Jesus. And because these Sadducees, because they cannot deny the miracle, and because they are um, surrounded by a bunch of peer pressure themselves that is being put on them, well, they decide we don't really have any other choice, so we have to simply let these guys go. And so as I said at the beginning, right now we find ourselves in the third part of our series in the book of Acts, where we are working through a bunch of different things. And the first thing that we spent our time working through is this. It was the message of Jesus, right? The whole first section was all about the good news of Jesus's life, his death, and his resurrection. And then in part two of this series, we spent some time unpacking the mission of Jesus, right? We spent six weeks looking at what exactly is it that Jesus is calling us to. And a major part of that mission, well, it was to take this message of Jesus and it was to get it out. To get it out to who? To get it out to everyone, to the ends of the earth, to every human who is willing to listen. Part of the mission is to get that message out, which leads us to part three, where we're at in our current series, which is all about the method of Jesus. And specifically, we're trying to answer the question of how, right? How are we supposed to achieve this grand, crazy mission that Jesus has given us? And so last week, Pastor Seth talked about the fact that one of the things we learn in the book of Acts is that how we are called to do it is, well, we're called to do it in community. That we are not designed to follow God alone or to be on mission alone, but we are called to do all of this in the context of a biblical community, right? That's part of the how. And so this week, we find another part of the answer to that question of how are we supposed to get the message out. And this week, I think one of the things we find is that how God uses the courage and the boldness of his followers, right? If the message of Jesus, if it really is going to go out into all the world, it will take followers of Jesus who are bold enough and who have enough courage to actually take it there. And so with the rest of our time together, what I want to do is I want to leave you guys with three things, three principles that I think we find in this passage. And the first one is exactly what we just said. It's this. It's that God uses the courage and the boldness of his followers. And so in the same way there was opposition to the gospel, to the message of Jesus in the first century, there is still opposition to that message today. And so if this message is going to go out, if we are going to live out the mission that God has called us to, it will require us to display boldness 
and courage to overcome that opposition. I do want to be super clear that there is a big difference between boldness and arrogance, right? Those are not the same things. And so when the Bible talks about boldness, it is not talking about the volume of your voice or the intensity with which you deliver the message, right? Some of us think boldness and we think like bold font, all caps, like that is not what this is going for. Boldness is not about being brash or rude or in your face. Boldness is definitely not about your next social media post, which I think is actually the opposite of what this passage is going for. And I say all that because I think it's possible to read this story of Peter's interaction with these men. I think it's possible to think that Peter was a little bit all of those things. I think it's possible to read a harsh and a brash and an in-your-face tone into this passage that I don't think is actually there. And the reason I don't think it's there is because the same Peter who is acting with such boldness, well, he went on to write this to the early church. He said, I want you to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asked you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but to do this with gentleness and with respect. Right When Peter was giving instructions to the early church about sharing their faith, he gave them the qualifier that they had to do this with gentleness and with respect. And so if boldness is not about being pushy or obnoxious or forceful or aggressive, then, then what is it? What, what is this boldness that they're talking about? Well, the word that Luke uses in verse 13 to capture what, uh, what these leaders witnessed in Paul and John is this word, it's the word parousia, parousia. Now, most Bibles actually translate that word boldness. The one that we read this morning came out of the NIV. Uh, they use the word courage, which I think is a very good way to capture what Luke is going for. But if you dive in a little bit further into the original word, uh, it comes from two root words in the Greek. And here's the two root words it comes from. It comes from the words all and speech, which probably confuses you at first, right? All in speech, but here's what I think the idea is that Luke is trying to communicate. It's that when we speak about Jesus, that we would be courageous enough to all speak. That we would have the courage to speak without holding back. That when we're asked about Jesus or when we talk about Jesus, that we would speak with confidence and with clarity that we would never water down the truth that we believe we find in Scripture. And yet, as Peter says in, in 1 Peter, right, that we would do all of that, that we would all speak, and yet we would still do that while being gentle and respectful. And so if the boldness that Luke is referring to, if it really means to be courageous in our speech, then the opposite of that, well, that would be to be cowardly in our speech, it would be to hold back the truth in conversations or to soften the truth out of fear about how that message might be received or about how sharing that message might negatively affect you, the messenger. And so maybe that could be fear about someone rejecting you socially. It could be fear that maybe you have the fear that it might cause you to miss out on a promotion at work. In some parts of our world, sharing that message might evoke fear for their physical safety. As I was thinking about all this, I was reminded of a time in my life. So me and my wife, were, uh, we were engaged, and we were about six months out from being married, and we were looking for a new house, and we found one, and we bought our first house together. And so I moved into the house, and my wife, uh, now wife, uh, she decided she was going to still live with her, her college roommate, uh, and so she lived in the house with them. And so I moved in, started fixing up some stuff on the house, 
And pretty early in the process, I went out to the mailbox one day and I met one of my neighbors. Like I was just out of the mailbox, they were coming out. We just kind of had the, the, the new awkward neighbor conversation. We're just asking some questions. She's getting to know me a little bit. And I just explained in the process, yeah, I'm, in, I'm engaged. My wife, we bought this house, but she doesn't live here yet. She's gonna move in after we get married. And just kind of explaining the things, answering questions. And in the middle of that process, that statement caught her off guard. She was like, wait, you're engaged, but she's not here yet. And she, she asked the question. She said, why? So now I had this opportunity in front of me. And in that moment, I chose to deflect the question. Right? I said, well, you know, it's, it's her last semester in college, and she, she, she's living with this roommate and their friend, and she's moving away, and they share rent. And I, I said a lot of things, and all the things that I said were true, but they were also cowardly because I did not all speech, right? I, I held back. And what I should have said, well, it's because actually because we're both followers of Jesus and because we believe in the teachings of Jesus, including his teachings about marriage, right? There are a lot of things that I could have said, but instead of saying those things, I was a coward. I held back and I missed out on an opportunity that God had put in front of me. And so I want you guys to think about the moments when you get asked questions about why you do certain things or maybe why you don't do certain things, right? Do you tend to deflect the question or do you see it as an opportunity to talk about Jesus? And so for example, this coming week when someone says, hey, what did you do this weekend? You could talk about the game that you watched or you could talk about the snow that came or you could say, you know what, I went to church and it was awesome. And that speaker, man, wow, that speaker, he was, he was eloquent and deeply insightful. And right, like, right, no, you could just say, I went to church. And if they say, why? You could say, because I believe in the teachings of Jesus. And maybe they'll say, why? And then, right, like, you get to have a conversation. And that doesn't mean you have to be pushy or forceful or aggressive. It simply means if you're given the opportunity that you would all speak, that you would not hold back, that you would be courageous enough to actually honestly answer the question. And as we talked about at the beginning, hopefully that's something that you actually enjoy doing, right? If Jesus is someone that you are excited about, then when you have the opportunity to talk about him, that should be something that we are excited about. And so the first thing that I think this passage teaches us is that God uses the courage and the boldness of his followers. Which leads us to the second thing. Second thing is this. I think that the world will notice your courage, right? When you do this, the world will notice your courage. I think one of the coolest parts of this story is that the Jewish leaders, the ones who were opposed to the message, they are the ones who notice their courage. And according to Luke, they don't just notice their courage. They make a direct connection between their courage and the person of Jesus, and I think the same thing would be true today. I think all of us have been in conversations with someone about whatever it is, doesn't matter what they're talking about. And while you're talking to them, you can just sense the level of confidence and conviction they have about whatever it is they're talking about. And their level of confidence, it communicates something to you, right? If they are speaking with confidence, it gives you confidence in what they're saying, right? And if they hesitate, if they, they doubt, if they waver in what they're saying, right, and you're listening, you, you kind of start to doubt what they're telling you too. And I think the same thing is true for us when we speak 
or when we don't speak about God, right? When we speak with boldness, our courage, I think it communicates something about the level of conviction we have in what we claim to believe. And when we hesitate, when we waver, unfortunately, I think that communicates something too, right? If we are ashamed of the gospel, if we are unwilling to make sacrifices for the gospel, what does that communicate to someone who is investigating or considering the person of Jesus? And remember, this is not about your skill set. This is not about being winsome in speech, right? This is about the courage with which we speak. If you go back to our passage, look back at verse 13 with me one more time. It says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled ordinary men, that they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus, right? The thing that stood out to them, it was not their skill set. It was their courage. It was their all speak. And in fact, the word ordinary that is used to describe them, this word ordinary actually means the opposite of skill set. See if you guys can figure it out. Here's the word that ordinary means in the Greek. It's the word idiotes. Idiotes. Turn to your neighbor and say idiotes. Right? You see, speaking boldly is not about your skill set or your ability. It is about courageously presenting the truth. And when we do that, the world will notice your courage. The world will notice your courage. But all this leaves us with the obvious question, right? Well, what if we don't feel like we have that courage? Where does that boldness come from and how do I get there? Which leads us to the last one and it's this. Boldness requires God's power and our willingness. Boldness requires God's power and our willingness. So uh, if you were to read through both the book of Luke and the book of Acts all the way through, which we have done as a church over the past year, if you read through both of those books, you will notice that there is a marked difference between the disciples' behavior in the book of Luke and the one that you find in the book of Acts, right? Especially related to their courage. And so, for example, at the end of the book of Luke, we see Peter acting in fear. He gets confronted by a servant girl who says, like, hey, you're a follower of Jesus, right? And Peter, in fear, is, like, cowering, and he's like, I, I don't even know the man, right? Like, he publicly disowns knowing Jesus when a servant girl asks him if he's a follower. Well, you move into the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, we see, bold, we see Peter boldly speaking to, like, 5,000 people publicly, Well, that's drastically different than him cowering in fear when a girl simply asks, like, hey, do you know him, right? Like, what in the world happened? What changed? Well, what changed is Acts chapter 2, the apostles are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what changed. And in verse 8 in our passage, right before Peter gives his bold response, remember what I told you to underline? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Right? How was he able to give such a bold answer? Well, because the Spirit was empowering him to do so. And this truth, this reality is affirmed again at the end of our story. So after Peter and John get released, Luke says that they go back to their people, they fill them in, they tell them everything that has happened, and then Luke tells us that they immediately, they start to pray. And check out the end of their prayer, verse 29. They say, now, Lord, consider their threats, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So how does the story end? It ends with the church praying and asking for boldness. They know this is not an isolated incident. They knew that more trials would come. And they were also smart enough to know that they were going to need some help. They knew that they need the Spirit of God to give them the courage to take his message to a world that desperately needed it. Why? Well, because boldness requires God's power. But it also requires our willingness. It also requires our willingness, right? In the story that I shared a few minutes ago about me and my neighbor, I was already a follower of Jesus. I was already given the gift of the Spirit. I had everything I needed in that moment to all speech. I simply chose not to, right? In that moment, I wasn't willing. In that moment, I chose to listen to my flesh and listen to my fear and my thoughts of like, oh, this is gonna be awkward, but I listened to those things instead of listening to the spirit, right? I chose the easy way out. And so while boldness definitely requires God's power, it also requires our willingness. It requires us to be willing to step out of what is comfortable and into the places and the conversations where God is calling us to be. So right now I'm gonna invite the band back up and in just a moment, we're gonna actually give you just a minute or so of space to do the exact thing that the apostles did and to actually ask God for courage and for boldness. Now, depending on where you're at in this room, right? All of us come here and we are in different places spiritually. Some of us have been following Jesus for 20 years and some of you here, you're just investigating. You're not even sure if you believe in this Jesus guy yet. And so for some of you in the room, that the prayer is gonna look a little different and I'm gonna ask you to simply uh, maybe pray and ask God to give you the courage to follow him, right? Maybe some of you in this room, you've known for a while that you kind of believe in God, but you have been afraid to admit that to yourself or to anybody else. And maybe today is the day that you have the courage to take that step, to make the decision to commit your life to following Jesus. Or perhaps maybe you've wandered and you've walked away and you just need the courage to say, all right, Jesus, I'm choosing back in. Maybe that's the decision you need to make. And if that's you, if you're one of those first categories, then I'm actually gonna ask you to pray for boldness twice. First, I'm gonna ask you to pray for the boldness to choose in. And then I'm gonna ask you to ask God for the boldness and the courage to tell somebody, to tell the person that maybe brought you here, to tell a friend, to tell one of us on staff. Because I guarantee that this week, someone's gonna ask you the question, hey, what did you do this weekend? And you know what a really bold answer would be? It'd be to say, you know what? I made the decision to follow Jesus this weekend. And then for those of us in the room who are already followers of Jesus, I'm gonna ask you to pray the exact same thing that the early church prayed. I ask you to say, God, would you consider the threats? Would you consider whatever opposition there is in the world around me? And would you enable me, your servant, to speak your word with great boldness? And that doesn't mean that we won't still be afraid. Or there won't be things that that some sort of fear that we have to overcome, but God, would you give me the courage in that moment to step up and to speak up anyways? So right now, I'm gonna ask the band just to do a little bit of something in the background to make it a little less awkward for you. Um, and I'm gonna give you about a minute, and I'm just gonna invite you where you are to take a moment and just to pray and to ask God for boldness. And then after about a minute, I will pray and close this out, and then the band will lead us out like they normally do. So right now, where you are, 
Would you ask God for boldness? Father, we know that we live in a world that uh, is often opposed to your message and to your teachings. We know that if we speak about you or talk about you, that there will be resistance, whether that's um, a little level of social pressure or something way worse, depending on our circumstances. So God, would you give us boldness? Not the ability to be rude or loud or insensitive, but God, would you give us courage to honestly speak the truth that we believe about you? Would you help us step into the moments that cause us fear or anxiety? Would you give us the words in those moments to know what to say and when to say it and how to be people who are unashamed of who you are and the gospel that we believe? God, I want to pray the dangerous prayer that you would give us opportunities to put this into practice this week. God, would people at our places of work and our neighbors and friends or family, God, would you cause people to ask us questions that give us a chance to do the thing that we talked about today and actually live this out? God, thank you for your grace and your mercy in my life in the moments when I have not gotten this right, when I have cowered in fear or backed down. God, we are incredibly grateful for the mercy you show to us and the message you have given us and entrusted to us. God, would you help us live this out? We're asking in your son's name. Amen.